You're listening to the Voices Project broadcast on Radio Boise. I'm Olivia Wheats. In this half hour, stories about folk life, produced in a workshop that we held in the fall of 2017. This house has to be saved. In our family, Shabbat is sacred. The moment Shabbat begins, there's no more phone calls, there's no more emails, there's no more worries. I make what are called flat top instruments and they're used for Celtic music and old time and sometimes bluegrass. Making mandolins by hand, celebrating the Jewish Sabbath, preserving a Victorian era home. These individuals are carrying on traditions, continuing a way of doing things. And this is folk life in Boise. At a time when fewer and fewer people know how to make the things they use, these local residents are finding daily meaning in the things that they're creating. For inspiration, many of them are looking to the past. Tradition is critical, but it's not locked in some era. It's not stuck in some community. And it doesn't have to be. Folk life can really thrive here. It already is. But it's worth asking, as Boise grows, what kinds of cultural expression will we find here? And what are the things that people in our community will make? To bring you these uniquely Idaho stories, we partnered with the state folklorist, Stephen Hatcher, at the Idaho Commission on the Arts. In this first piece, producer Dave Foch introduces us to a man whose life's work is preserving buildings. Frank Eld's most recent project, which he says may be his last, is a bright blue house that's 100 years old. It was saved from demolition and moved to where it sits now on Reserve Street in East Boise. This is why I have this house. I love this note post. As he speaks, Frank Eld wraps his arms lovingly around the hand-carved post shaped like the head of a fiddle. This house has to be saved. A house that has this stairway and this null post has got to be saved. The staircase exudes Victorian charm now that it's been stripped of white paint and returned to its original beauty. If you want to experience history, you've got to go to a, an original building. And so when people walk into this house and they say, this is like stepping back in time, that's the greatest compliment that I could ask for, because that's what I want them to feel. Frank has done plenty of this work over the past 50 years. He's perhaps most well-known for restoring log cabins and buildings related to his Finnish heritage in the town of Roseberry, just east of Donnelly. I'm addicted to old buildings, and if there's a cure, I don't want to hear about it. So, <laughs> Frank and I are sitting in the kitchen of the Jones House. It was built in 1893, and until two years ago, occupied a corner lot at 6th and Myrtle. I'm going to get this thing. I'm going to share it with you. <clears throat> he brings back a framed box with artifacts he found while restoring the house. And these are date pennies. Which means? Which means they were placed there to date when the work was done. Like most houses this old, there have been lots of remodels. Frank loves unraveling the clues left by previous owners. Every artifact tells a story. This is a pass-through cabinet. 
Oh, look at that. It passed through into the pantry. That was such a big deal, it made the Idaho statesman in 1893. It said, T.J. Jones has completed his house in Central Edition for the cost of $5,000, and there is a unique hutch in the dining room, and that's what they're talking about. We wander through the dining room. Frank points out pictures and the ornate chandelier. This is a electric gas combination. At the time the house was built, electricity was just becoming available, but it wasn't reliable. So gas was the backup lighting source. Now uh, we are in the parlor, the formal parlor. Let me turn on the light. Lights. In keeping with the era, Frank decorated with a busy high-end Victorian wallpaper. Uh, again, From the ceiling hangs another wallpaper. chandelier. Uh, this organ, this pump organ, if you look at this picture here, you will see that's my uncle, my mother's oldest brother, Victor Kangas. Naturally, there's a story behind this family heirloom. This was his pay for working for a farmer up in Long Valley one summer. Victor didn't get to enjoy his hard-earned pay for long. He was called up to serve in the First World War and never came home. No one else played. Eventually, the organ found its way into the hay barn at the old home. It wasn't long before a mischievous fifth grader named Frank wanted to tear it apart for its reeds. His mother wouldn't have it. So then I said to Mom, well, if I can't tear it apart, can we fix it? And they did. I'm in fifth grade. Now, you want to know when I got started in this. You never know where you might light a fire in a passion. There's a calendar in the photo of Uncle Victor and his organ. It was 1916. The organ was moved into this house 100 years later. Uh, it's, it's a huge part of my life. Uh, I often say I work for a living, but I live for history. Frank is 71. He understands there are more years behind him than in front. This may or may not be the last house he preserves. What I want to leave is uh, a trail behind me of preserved buildings that reflect those who came before. In front of the house is something no one in the late 19th century could have imagined, a new roundabout. The landscaping was put off until the roundabout was finished, and Frank has yet to build a sauna. He is Finnish, after all. This house could have had a very different story, if not for this man and his passion for history. We just keep working at it, like I say on my card, preserving buildings one at a time. Catherine Sirio spent time with a family of women from Iraq. These women enjoy cooking dishes from their homeland. It's one way they celebrate their heritage. For the matriarch of the family and her daughter-in-law, food became something more. Every occasion, every celebration, every uh, anything, the food, first thing we think about. When I entered Wadad al-Hamadani's apartment, I could smell a nutty aroma of cardamom chased by a sweet scent of turmeric with hints of orange and ginger. I was in Boise's bench district, but I was also 7,000 miles away at an Iraqi spice market. Four years ago, Wadad, the family matriarch, and her adult children left their Baghdad home and came to Boise as war refugees. They hosted me at Wadad's apartment for an evening of traditional Iraqi dishes and stories. First 
thing I learned to do is the white rice. So my mom cooked the stew uh, the day before and put it in the refrigerator. And when I came, because I am the oldest sister in the in my family, so I uh, learned to cook the white rice. Widad learned to cook from her mother and her grandmother. In time, she taught her daughter, Hanan al-Jara, how to cook the rice. Hanan showed me how to cook a more advanced version, Iraqi green rice. So this is baba beans, and it's, it's from Arab mm-hmm. store. And I have chopped onion here, and I have fresh chopped dough. I'll add the dough. As the rice cooked, the dill turned brilliant green and the aroma of cardamom and curry deepened. I was witnessing the passing down of tradition one pot at a time. And if I add that, I will never add any salt. It's important to this Iraqi family to carry on tradition, especially since they've settled into a new land. But they differ on which traditions to continue. Widad wears her hijab in public. It's a sign of her modesty and her deep Muslim faith. But in America, Hanan stopped wearing her hijab. She found it caused unwanted attention when she dropped her kids off at school or went grocery shopping. Still... Both women share a deep love of traditional Iraqi cooking, and they plan to teach those skills to the younger generation. But there's no rush. Hanan's daughter, she's a kindergartner, and as Widad says, the skill becomes necessary later in life. But um, uh, cooking uh, is not our duty at home uh, until we marry. In her family... Cooking is about more than eating. A woman's cooking skills also serve as instruments of love and keys to marriage. Widad's daughter-in-law, Luma Nesrawi, married her son, Mohammed. Luma describes the art of cooking and courtship. You remember we have that saying where it says the fastest way to the uh, to the heart of a man is his stomach. <laughs> so you have to cook so he'll be proud of you. He'll like your cooking. You're a good mother. You're a good wife. When someone comes to propose, it's not the man himself. The, the family would come to the bride's family and propose and ask for her hand. So it's an arranged um, a marriage. That's the traditional way and the cultural way. For some Iraqi families, the groom's parents ask about a woman's skills in the kitchen. For Luma, it was Mohammed, her future husband, who tested her before they tied the knot. My husband oh, did a small quiz for me when we were talking. Like he would ask, <laughs> he would ask because one I, thing, and he said, what kind of spices would you put in that stew? What is it called? The okra. The okra stew uh, that we do. So this is the only no yes, this is the only stew that you don't put spices on. Just garlic. So once she passed the okra test, 
Luma took on the ultimate challenge. She cooked her first dish for her future mother-in-law. You uh, first uh, cooked uh, that uh, eggplant uh, malfouf. Oh, oh yeah, the right. rolled eggplants and with it, the it kebabs. Was, yeah, it was very delicious. Uh, she uh, did it uh, another A different way. way. Yeah, yeah, that my mom used to do it. Like, you... Um, uh, you get the uh, eggplant and slice them, and mm-hmm. then uh, fry, it. fry them, and then you do the kebabs. With her surprise twist on eggplant stew, Luma won Widad over. Widad claims that today, both Luma and Hanan surpass her in the kitchen. The daughters disagree, which led to a friendly discussion about who makes the best baklava. That's when it hit me. Cooking isn't just a way to a man's heart. Cooking brought these Iraqi women closer together. These three women love each other's cooking, just as they love each other. And that love... You can taste it in every bite. Because even when they use the same recipe, the dish tastes different. Each dish tastes like its creator. Said in our language, uh, it's uh, the soul. The soul. When my uh, son uh, eats something, he said, that's mom cooking. Casey O'Leary describes herself as a farmer and a seeds woman. She not only cares where her seeds come from, but she works to understand each individual seed's heritage. And preserving these seeds, it's something maternal. Mo Valco has this one. Casey O'Leary measures time in garlic. I started farming technically 14 years ago now, I guess. I've We just planted our 14th crop of garlic, so that's how I keep track. I visit Casey in her greenhouse. She's raking her hands through a bin of corn seeds. It's Dakota black popcorn, an heirloom variety. Partly why I don't feel the need to have kids, because I have thousands and thousands of seed babies I'm always taking care of. It's it's often been the work of women to do this work, and... uh, and it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's extremely fertile. And um, one of the interns this year, Amanda, she said, um, what I learned this year is that the seed is, is the thing that it holds the past and the present and the future in it. Casey runs Snake River Seed Co-op, which grows close to 300 varieties of crops for seeds. She personally grows almost half of those. It wasn't until eight years ago that she started selling seeds from her farm, Earthly Delights. Four years in, she knew she needed help. Like, the level of responsibility I feel to these seeds is enormous. People were relying on them. They got attached to the idea of having them and understanding that they did grow better for their gardens and stuff. And so then if I had a crop failure on something, I just was like, I felt like I was letting so many people down. And I ask her if she has a crop that she particularly enjoys harvesting. The way our field is planted, we, we put the lettuces in kind of a patchwork with other things, with radishes and onions and uh, mustards and just all sorts of things. And um, so the way the field is laid out in the spot where the lettuces are is really, is really beautiful. It's just like 
you know, you're just surrounded by waist-high ripening seeds. And uh, it just feels really abundant and really beautiful and quite feminine, really. To harvest them, we use uh, embroidery hoops, like one foot wide embroidery hoops, and then we put pillowcases on them. And then we just, like, harvest the harvest the seed stalks into the pillowcases and there's just it's just something about that that's so it's just it's pretty a lot of casey's current work is centered around stewarding heirloom varieties of corn that have been passed down through generations of native americans she feels conflicted about this that these seeds don't belong to her own ancestral history yet as a seed saver she feels responsible to the history and future carried in these seeds you know when i when i have these worries like is it okay is it okay for me to be growing the corn is it okay for me to be sharing the corn in the ways that i am uh just yeah i mean what's my role i think you know in some ways like i want somebody to say you know your role is um is as a seed keeper or something you know that that, that you have a uh, right or something about it being my sacred responsibility to do this work, you know. But obviously that's not the kind of culture that I live in. So I just tend to sort of second-guess myself a lot with the corn. I talk to the corn a lot. Uh, she does tell me that she's given me permission to do this, but sort of conditionally. I hope that doesn't sound too weird, but um, she's, yeah, I mean, she's she's willing to let me try it. But yeah, there's a... There's a, it's not, it's not, it's, it's conditional. I mean. There are now 27 growers who save seeds for the co-op. So how does she persuade other farmers to get on board? You know, some folks have just embraced it wholeheartedly and just absolutely love it and have incorporated it into their farm models and, um, in a big way. And then some, you know, just do one crop on the side just because they're willing to, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because you convince them somehow. <laughs> well, I'd like to believe it. I'm not, you know, pushing yeah. anybody. But yeah, I mean, I do tend to hold people's feet to the fire a little bit on it because I think it is really important. <laughs> the work to carry on these families of seeds ensures their history will be carried through for future generations. That's another thing that we work on is all the varieties that we use are open pollinated. So there's no hybrids, which means that you can save your own seed off of everything that we sell. You know, we want we want people to be able to do this. We want seeds to be free and, um, you know, like unfettered. You're listening to the Voices Project broadcast on Radio Boise. We're playing pieces produced in our fall folk life workshop. We'll be right back. Hello, everybody out there in Radio Land. This is Tom Brusso, the High Plainsman from North Dakota, and you're listening to KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. I'm Olivia Weitz, and this is the Voices Project broadcast. In this half hour, stories about those who are carrying on traditions in Boise. Mendel Lifshitz is a Chabad rabbi who runs a Jewish educational, cultural, and social center in Boise. And he likes to break down the barriers and get personal. Every Friday night, he and his wife Esther celebrate the Jewish Sabbath. They invite Jews in town over for dinner and to be a little more Jewish than perhaps they otherwise would be. Elizabeth Rogers brings us this piece. A lot of Jewish people assume that if they don't identify as a religious person, I'm not ready to keep kosher. I'm not ready to observe the Sabbath. Therefore, maybe I have nothing to do with with my Judaism. And we're here to tell them, no, that's not true. Every person is welcome and encouraged to participate in their Jewish tradition and faith at their own level. That's Rabbi Mendel Lifshitz. 
Boise, Idaho's first permanent Chabad rabbi. Chabad has been sending people, Chabad rabbis, to Boise for over 50 years. That's Esther, Mendel's wife. Although Chabad defies a pithy explanation, here goes. Chabad is a global Jewish organization that helps Jews connect with their Judaism. Chabad has outposts in 100 countries around the world, including Boise, Idaho. Me? I'm a Jew in Boise, Idaho. At Chabad, we're here to help every single Jew connect with their faith at a deeper level. Mendel and Esther came to the Treasure Valley 13 and a half years ago with their one child. Their family has grown. Our oldest is David, he's 14. Then we have Zali, who's 13. Then we have Mushka, who's 12. And Ari is 10. Maisha is 8. Javi is 7. Shana is 4. And Ricky is 1. Thank God. And every Friday night, with their children and local and visiting Jews, Esther and Mendel celebrate Shabbat, the Jewish Sabbath. Well, Shabbat is, is really an island in time. From the time the sun sets on Friday evening uh, until the stars come out on Saturday night, all of our chaos is kind of just frozen out. To follow the commandment of doing no work on the Sabbath, a lot of work has to be done on Friday before the sun goes down. From the second you wake up on Friday, you already feel a different energy in your bones. The kitchen is probably the most intense uh, part of the home on Friday. Uh, Esther is busy uh, preparing uh, literally a four or five course dinner. Is there school or no school on Friday? The kids have half a day on Friday. Um, so let's put it this way. I try to get a lot done before they come home. So my morning is super busy. I'm trying to prep a lot and get just my day going, 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 going. You know? When I get to the Lifshitz house at noon on Friday, there are tin foil pans full of vegetables covering Esther's gigantic kitchen table. There's chicken soup and a pot of carrots on the stove, more food in the oven, and she's slicing beets. It's, I, I make everything fresh on Friday, A to Z. At home, Esther and Mendel speak to their kids in Yiddish. Yiddish is an almost thousand-year-old language spoken by Eastern and Central European Jews. It has a mixture of German, Aramaic, and other Slavic languages. Again, this is a pithy definition. There's a lot more to it. Do you know what challah means? The word challah is actually found in the Torah, in the Jewish Bible. Esther tells me that when Jews made bread dough, all the way back to the times of Moses, they would take off a portion of their sustenance and give it to the priests in order to show gratitude that we recognize that everything comes from God. So nowadays, we don't have the temple, but we still keep up this sacred tradition. It's almost sunset. Time for Shabbat. The activity in the house is frenetic. Their daughter Mushka sets up candles for the women to light to welcome them Shabbat. Uh, the purpose of lighting the candles is to bring peace into the home. And uh, the trendsetter for peace in the home is the woman. I had to turn off my recorder. Shabbat had started. No recording on Shabbat. What happened next? Well, 
after a few more prayers, about 21 of us had a delicious four-course Shabbat dinner, accompanied by wine and vodka. The conversations were mundane, profound, and in between. One of the beauties of, of, of Shabbat dinner in our home is that people meet uh, other individuals who they may never have met before, and they sit around the table and they eat food and they we talk words of Torah and tell stories and uh, it's it's a it's a deeply religious experience, but it feels completely informal for a lot of people. This is uh, a great introduction to their own Jewishness because all the barriers have kind of fallen down. Shabbat is like having a weekly Thanksgiving. You take stock of your place in the world. You eat a lot of good food with friends and family, but there's no football. Thank God. Once you experience Shabbat, and once you appreciate and enjoy the beauty of being completely connected to who you really are and to the things that are really important in life and disconnected from all the chaos and confusion in the world around us, you don't want to let go. It's not the anticipation, when will Shabbat end? It's the dread, when will Shabbat end? Music by the Moody Jews of Boise. In this next piece, Malia Collins introduces us to a luthier. Jim Wilson started making mandolins out of a tiny closet when he was in his late 20s. A quarter of a century later, he's still making them. Though now, he's got a full-blown shop. Jim's tuning a mandolin at a shop in Garden City. He's mostly self-taught and has been building these instruments for nearly three decades. I ask him, what was the spark that got him interested in making mandolins? Boy, I just, I've, I've always been, I've always been working with wood in some form or another. And uh, I just got, I had a lot of friends that were musicians and, and got interested in, in making an instrument. And so I put, to, put together a very rudimentary thing, you know, this box, and, and uh, put strings on it. And, and that's kind of how it all started. After that, Jim started sketching out drawings of the instruments before he built them. And his craft improved. But what really kept his interest was what happens once the strings are attached. That's the magic of it, when you... When you you build something, you know, or, or do do some woodworking, and then put strings on it. Then it has a different life. It has a, it. It adds, you know, that that different dimension, and that's what kind of that's what sparked my interest early on. When Jim first started making mandolins, he woke up early. He couldn't wait to get the strings on. He still cherishes that moment, but it's different now. That kind of magic, it it has diminished. A little bit, you know, because I make so many of them, but uh, there's always that pleasure of stringing one, especially when, when, I, when I come up with a, with a new design or something, you know. Then it happens again, so. Jim's just finished working on three mandolins. They're almost ready to be shipped off, but he hasn't strung them just yet. He'll string them this afternoon and send them out into the world. I ask if he ever gets attached to certain instruments that he builds. It happens a couple times a year. Oh, it does? Uh, yeah. They have some extra, extra something to them. And I'll play even as poorly as I play, you know, I'll, I'll strum around. And, and then when it becomes 
pleasurable to play. I know it's it's set up right, and, and uh, sometimes when I'm when I'm doing that, I'll say, "Wow, this is really a, a nice one. It has it has something extra." I want to hear what that something extra sounds like. I bring Mike, a local mandolin player, down to Jim's shop. Hey, how's it going? This is my older son. Hi, Mike. Nice to meet you. They greet each other, and even though they've just met, they start talking instruments and sound like old friends. Nice mandolin. So, maple sides I watch Jim's face while Mike plays. He looks proud. Proud of the sound his mandolin makes, proud of the pleasure Mike takes in the playing. I now know what Jim means when he says once the strings are on, the instrument takes on a life of its own. I know Jim can't do this forever. He has a couple of sons who are interested in learning the craft, but it's not clear if they will make it their life in the way he has. He says if they're interested, all of this is theirs. Otherwise, it will go away with him, but he's okay with that. The, the satisfaction of knowing that by the time that my hands can no longer do this, then I'll, I'll probably have upwards of four or 500 instruments out in the oh. world, and hopefully they'll last a couple hundred years. Knowing that and having that as a legacy is to have that part of me out there, I think is, is enough for me. That was Mike Young, playing a mandolin made by Jim Wilson. Songs with stories of peace and protest, love and war, played often in Belinda Bowler's childhood home. Later on, she became a musician. Then she started teaching folk music, and it brought her another layer of meaning. This piece is by Marnie Ellis. about folk music and that I really like it or I learned to like Bob Dylan. I love blowing in the wind. They're kind of like upbeat and happy. It's a lot of truths. Kind of brings up a lot of conversation at the dinner table. It really is like from the heart. Belinda Bowler's fifth and sixth grade students at Foothill School are learning about the roots of classic folk music. The students are between 10 and 12 years old, and for most, the music is new to them. First, I learned who Bob Dylan is. I learned that he was a really big part of the civil rights movement. The fifth and sixth graders that I teach are studying what makes us different, how are we the same, how do you affect change, how can you be a voice for change. I thought, well, who knows more than that than... Well, folk music does that, but Bob Dylan does that. Blowing in the Wind was the first song I taught them. And the imagery in it is so, so powerful. And it's so much about questioning. Makes me feel curious, like, what does it mean? I met with Belinda at her East End home, a welcoming space full of soul, instruments, books, and flowers. Around the room are many old photographs of her family. So I grew up singing um, on trips, and um, music was a big part of what was going on in our, our family. Um, 
records going and, and there was and books I, you know we had lots of records and lots of books my dad was a singer my brother is a drummer and my sister was a singer and actually taught me the first song I learned on the guitar I'm gonna hear it tell me where have you been Billy boy Billy boy tell me where have you been charming Billy Music continued as a focal point in Belinda's life. She found early inspiration from songwriters like Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan. And when I was um, 14, 13 or 14, a friend asked me to go to Wyoming to uh, be a nanny for her girl. And I took the bus from mid- at midnight from Denver and I went to Walcott Junction <clears throat> with my guitar and my fringe jacket and my bell bottoms. And at the cabin where we were staying, there was a, a Bob Dylan songbook and a Peter, Paul, and Mary songbook. And I was a captive audience, and I, that was, I got it. Belinda studied art and dance at the University of Idaho, but she wanted to do music full-time. For several years, she toured around Idaho and around the country, but eventually, she sought out some stability. I got really tired of the bars, and I thought, I can't do I can't be sleeping on people's sofas playing bars you know I just can't do it I went back to school to get an elementary degree with a uh, emphasis on language and reading because language is what I love in her classroom Belinda focused on teaching the curriculum through song and storytelling and I really like teaching songs that tell a story so you can go back to folk music to old folk music or Bob Dylan, you know, you cover the spectrum of emotion mm-hmm. and and life and pain and joy. Students learn classic folk music in Belinda's class, but they also learn the power of that music, giving one hope that at least one part of the future is better understanding the past. I printed out the lyrics and I handed it out to them, and I had them highlight certain lyrics that they thought were powerful, and then I asked them to right on the side, uh, why it was powerful to them. And uh, a young man said, uh, how many times can a man turn his head and pretend he just doesn't see? And he was so articulate about, that is such a powerful thing. Is Why is that? Why can you keep turning your head and not see what's going on? Being divided is a big thing that's been happening to us ever since the world began. And sometimes music is a different way to express yourself. Well, if someone feels um, like sad or down about something and then like someone writes a song about it, um, then the person listens to it, then they feel like they're not the only one who feels that way. You've been listening to the Voices Project broadcast on Radio Boise. In this episode, you heard about folk life in Boise. These stories were produced by participants in a folk life radio storytelling workshop that was held at the Cabin Literary Center in the fall of 2017. I'm Olivia Wheats, and I organized and produced the workshop and this broadcast, along with Radio Boise program director Wayne Burt. Special thanks to Caroline Stivers for her support. This project was in partnership with Idaho's folklorist, Stephen Hatcher, and the Idaho Commission on the Arts, with support from the National Endowment for the Arts.
Music in this broadcast is Lost in Your by the musician Lior. Visit Radio Boise's SoundCloud page to listen to these stories again and to see some photos. You can write to us at voicesproject at radioboise.org. I'm Olivia Weeds. Thanks for tuning in.